Is it McAfee or McAfee? I say McAfee. McAfee. I don't really say either one very often in regular (laughs) conversation. Yeah, my Norton Utilities are really (laughs) And my bursitis. Hello and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast for the week of December 16th. This is going to be our last episode before the holiday break. We're going to take two weeks off and come back to you in the year 2020. Cheerful solstice, everyone. Cheerful Cheerful solstice. solstice. Come back to you from the future, which is what 2020 always sounds like to me. This week, we have a great guest, Chris Dixon from Andreessen Horowitz, who runs their crypto fund and is starting a little crypto startup school where you can go learn all about blockchain uh, you don't have to pay anything. They just want to bring folks in and spread the gospel. I know we have some big uh, crypto fans in the house, but before we get to that, he founded Site Advisor in 2004, and he said that was the height of spamware and spyware, and all browsers were miserable, and you'd go over mm-hmm. to your relative's house, and it would just be a nightmare. 2004 was pre-Facebook, yeah. pre-Twitter. yeah. Postpets.com. But it was like Web 2.0 was getting humming, but most people Friendster. were- Friendster. Yeah, friends are like most yeah. people were still, you know what killed everything? Toolbars, web toolbars. So you'd like, oh, install this toolbar. And it'd yeah. be like, oh, for Chase Bank. And it would also be like, install this thing. And it'd be Bonzi Buddy. It'd be a little monkey that would right. like, look at. Oh, the best. Those little cursors. Oh, yeah, animated That cursors. are like butterflies that are actually <laughs> flying and have like glitter following them. Those are the jam. They would just get you with silly fun stuff. Well, he was saying, right, like it became easier with the advent of faster speeds to just click and download, to accept mm-hmm. a download. You don't have to go out and buy a CD-ROM, Yeah, right? you just hit okay and no just one knew. Just hit okay and no one knew. And then also the folks on the browser side, even Microsoft, they were like, security is about somebody's trying to attack us and we'll shut that down. Yeah. We, we told you not to click the button. <laughs> That's really on you. Windows, yeah. too. It was just everything. <laughs> yeah, Windows were in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, and it was also, there was this whole world of like, oh, I hit the arrow where inst- I hit the big download button instead of the arrow on the right, which is what I was supposed mm-hmm. to hit. The big download button gave me oh, malware. Gotcha. The dark pattern. The other one was like a word processing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. When yeah. You, well, especially when you, you'd go on to some blog and I was like, download this amazing album. And then you go to like mega upload. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They made it so easy to install the spyware. Yeah. yeah. And it was hard to actually download the cool album. And people yeah. were jumping online by the millions. You got the AOL CD with the 400 Ooh. hours of free credit. And so yeah. it was just the Wild West. I mean, I think it was just exactly... We, we get this happens. You create this whole new space. There's a lot of trust built in. Yeah. And people exploit that trust. Someone figures it out. Well, you know what? I a market, make, a market opportunity. I want to make a point. That's right. This is a point for centralization. Like, oh my God, look, it's an open community of people <laughs> sharing web pages. And then it's like, actually, it's a living monkey that watches everything <laughs> you do. And then your Googles and your Facebooks or your different systems all show up and they're like, Let's make this a little better. Yeah. Let's yeah. make this a little more organized. Thank you for Paul, who can make points about centralization. Listen, let's, just, let's just take away some of your freedom, but there's no more little monkeys that come Without down. Without Paul, who would be doing it? Yeah, no. the train's going to run on time. <laughs> over um, and over until they listen. Um, all right, I'm, so, having, I'm having something similar happen to me right now that's just started happening yesterday. So I only, I, I've built Chrome plugins. I've done like, I've done this a bunch, but somehow when I get to my, I'm signed into my Chrome browser, the past two times I've gone to my computer, I get this pop-up that says plugin name that I never installed but sounds trustworthy, like Google Secure Teammate Password Storer mm-hmm. has to update its security p- permissions. Is that okay? Mm. Twice is enough to say this is a pattern. Someone might be snapping up these plugins that oh, no one's maintaining. So- 
the company that I'm the co-founder of, Postlight, we yeah. have a product called Mercury Reader. It's a Chrome plugin, and it makes every page very – it's a reader view mm. uh, mm -hmm. for, for Chrome because it didn't have one. And it's really good. You should check it out. Every week, I get an offer to buy it. Mm. <sighs> comes Is in that through what our, they're doing? Comes in through our main, and they're like, it'll be like, we only want to put extremely grievous pop under ads under everything. We'll give you this much. <laughs> I'd like to buy it. And I immediately write back and be like, it is $12 billion. And <laughs> yeah. then they go away. Yeah, because you can really, I mean, once you have those, there's we have an engineer here, Hervasio, who's done a lot of talking about this. Once you have those permissions in someone's browser, I mean, you can install things on their machine. That's, That's the thing. so crazy, we, right? We have hundreds of thousands of downloads. So they see yeah. that and they're like, how about it? And we're like, no, 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 oh, no, no, no. What a backdoor. So they'd snap yeah. up these little companies that made Chrome extensions that got a million downloads, and then they don't have to change anything. They already mm -hmm. have the permission. It is. It's terrible. So after SiteAdvisor sold, take time, time off, and it was like, machine learning is interesting. I got some colleagues from MIT. This is kind of before it became a buzzword. It was hot in you know CS circles or whatever. And they were like, what we need to do is build the taste graph. So you'd go to Hunch, you'd mm. take a little like kind of BuzzFeed style quiz. And that then was Chris be like, and, and Katarina Fake. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I love quizzes that talk. Like whatever personality type is the one that will stop everything they're doing and take any personality <laughs> test. That's you. That's me. Yeah. And like stuff like this, like predictive analytics. Sarah, what have you learned about yourself? <laughs> I'm addicted to uh Forget which Harry quizzes. Potter character That's, are you. Yeah. yeah. Slytherin. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Are you Slytherin? I'm a Slytherin. I'm Hufflepuff. I'm married to Hufflepuff. Mm. It's embarrassing. I just yeah. like being, I like being useful. Yeah, you like being other. Yeah, and don't don't mess with me because I'm Hufflepuff. Did I, I tell you guys about that amazing stack exchange question from the Hogwarts or from the like Harry Potter stack exchange yeah, the other week? One? Oh my God, it was so good. The question was, and this is very... How on earth is Hogwarts still allowed to be open, given that? I and then they this. name all the atrocities excellent. that happened there. Yeah. <laughs> it really like, is. Like, they should close the school down. And the, <laughs> it's not. The answer is, what a muggle question to ask yeah. <laughs> from, from a muggle mindset. <laughs> this is exactly how patriarchy works. You know, that's where you Yeah, like, they were gaslighting. Why are we letting this happen? Why would we <laughs> let everyone die? And so, of course you should shut down Hogwarts. Yeah. So, yeah, Hunter's was really cool. The quiz was really fun. And they would often be like, kind of surprise you. You know, they'd yeah. be like, well, you said these seven things. Also, did you know you love dark almond chocolate? And you'd be like, yes, I do. Why? Or, you know, you know, you love. I mean, love my, my memory of Hunch was like five times. And I was like, I'm not talking about almonds anymore. Right. So here's what I realized is that now all that stuff is Instagram. So I go to Instagram. Mm -hmm. They show me these ads. They always. So yeah. yeah. And so it's like Instagram knows I'm really into jujitsu, that I have kids, and that I've traveled to these places and That's like these right. restaurants. They don't have to quiz they me. They you. just no. suck it all up over I buy time. I something new on and Instagram every day. It's crazy how this good they're targeting This is real. Like, is. Hunch was there early. Yeah. It, it just was um, explicit instead of implicit. Right. Like, hey, I need to ask these things to get this information, which is kind of how we used to think of the web, which was, it wouldn't just passively observe you at all times and sneak. Right. It was very like, hey, I need some knowledge for my robots to make decisions about <laughs> yeah. consumer behavior. And it's right. like, I'm a consumer. <laughs> and then we'd all, you know, you'd work together with Hunch and, and it, it sold, right? That one sold too. Yeah, they sold yeah. to eBay. Yeah, they were missing the social imperative that gets you to do all the work for free. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm. And then now we're in the world. We're in Hunch's world, except yeah. it just it's listening instead of talking. Yeah. yeah. Another security thing I'm noticing is like, why does dots the game need Bluetooth access. <laughs> or the candy anymore. Everything, everything yeah. called dots. Or like Mystery yeah. Mermaid game <laughs> would oh. like Bluetooth access. Yeah. And you're just like, wait a second. And the thing about the Bluetooth is that they're telling like who you're near. So like now my phone knows I'm hanging out with Ben's phone. Right. So it's like, hey, do you like jujitsu? And I'm like, no, I like person. Yes. Or dots. 
for dots. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're asking for all kinds of permissions. Chris Dixon was involved in some pretty interesting stuff early on as well where they, called Hashcash. Are you familiar with Hashcash? Is it like Bitcoin? Sort of. It's sort of like a proto-Bitcoin. Is it so like when you buy hash? No. Okay. <laughs> cash. It was like this anti-spam thing where they were like oh, trying to figure out and they were like, I how can we do microtransactions this. so that if you spend a million, if you send a million emails, it, it costs you a lot. proto-blockchain, I remember. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, you know, everybody who's- Microsoft was like into that concept yeah, yeah. for a while. Yeah. It was really interesting. It was like, so, okay, the average person sends 10 emails a day and they get 10 emails a day. Their ledger yeah. will be neutral. But if you send 10 million emails and receive none, we're going to start charging you. Hence, we'll get rid of all the spammers. So that was a kind of a cool idea, which was very interesting to a lot of people who then got early into crypto. No, it's like an actual practical application of that concept instead yeah. of making magic nonsense nickels <laughs> out, of the, out of people's Wait, math brains. His argument, Paul, is that obviously it's not fully baked as to what the consumer application is. Hmm. It's not, he's not into it as a currency or as a speculation, but it is a new type of computer. It can be Turing complete. And therefore, it's super interesting. And you should just be, at, on an intellectual level and perhaps a technological level, you should not be poo-pooing it or, uh, why does it get on your nerves? Because I've, it's been a while now. It's been <laughs> a long time. Hold on, let me check my Bitcoin phone and make some Bit calls. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's not real. Um, let me, <laughs> let, just skipping we're only technology. seven years into the 15-year cycle it's that like, will take us to the Bitcoin computer. What, what Sarah did with Ruby on Rails is kind of what I'm yeah. doing with blockchain. Just like, I was about to say that. You're skipping it. If it shows background... Anytime it goes real, I'm like, cool, that'll be fine. I like blockchains as a concept. I'm right. good. Everything's I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm a cool person who likes to hang out. <laughs> I might be doing this with Brave. And what if everyone gets rich? Right. That's going to be yeah. upsetting. I, 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 today I'm going to download it. Yeah. I got on Keybase and I get Stellar Lumens. Really? I I get a new message on QBS every day. I haven't logged in, logged in in years. Oh, you got to read the Vicky Boykis piece. It's gone bad. They got bought and now there's tons of spam yeah, there's on there. Yeah, spam, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. But I definitely have $43 in Stellar Lumens. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm really happy for myself. There's good spam, though. I, my DMs are open on Twitter because I get amazing things. Like yesterday, a stranger, some guy, uh, DM'd me and 70 other people with just why? Question mark. That's a good one. How did, did people react? No, no one's answer. No, I think everyone like immediately clamps down. It's really funny. It's just everybody thinks Why? they've cracked the communication code with DMs, and then yeah. everyone's just like, oh, no, I'm not here. I'm not. <laughs> okay. No, look, it's undeniable that people are very excited about blockchain, and yes. it's undeniable that it is based on real technology and that, that interesting things will come of it one like day. Bitcoin. People. But anyway, I'm excited about Bitcoin. Yay, finally. Well, yeah, take me back to the beginning. Where did this all start for you? How'd you get into programming? Great. Yeah. So, well, thanks for having me. So I grew up in a small town in Ohio and uh, basically got interested in computers from a young age. Started was programming like Apple IIs. And basically, I think kind of like a lot of people got into video games and then wanted to make video games and, and started yeah. programming video games. And back then that meant assembly language. Later on, I got into C programming and uh, did that kind of throughout both like as a kid and then in school. And then after school, I worked for a couple of years as a programmer at a high-speed trading company. But then, you know, at some point, this was in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, looked around and said, you know, maybe I should start to actually plan out a career <laughs> as opposed to just <laughs> taking random programming jobs and discovered the world of technology entrepreneurship. And that all culminated in a uh, 2004, I started a computer security company. It was called Site Advisor. So 2004, uh, for those who were kind of around then, are active on the on the internet. 
I think of that as kind of the worst point from a security perspective. When we started the company, it was actually kind of like Firefox had just come out. It was kind of before the Apple Mac renaissance. So most people were using PCs. There was a notorious version of Internet Explorer 5.5, I think it was, that you go, you know, visit your parents for Thanksgiving and they'd have all the spyware on their computer and pop-ups. And, yeah, and, sure. um, and there were all these uh, things like these, the software for trying to remove it. And our idea was, wouldn't it be nice if there was a piece of software that played the role we used to talk about the kind of smart, your smart friend uh, who's looking over your shoulder and saying, hey, don't download that. Don't click on that. The idea of the company we basically built, it was kind of a hard tech problem. We, we went and built something a little bit like a search engine where it crawled the web and analyzed websites and downloaded software and analyzed the software. And then just basically culminated in a rating for every website. That's what's called Site right. Advisor. It's actually, we were pretty early users, at least for this application of virtual machines. We couldn't have done it without virtual machines. So we, we had a data center. It was, I think, AWS was starting up. But at 2004, you were still kind of doing your own colo and everything. And so we built a data center and had virtual machines running. And it would literally download every piece of software. So I think we downloaded, I mean, literally millions of pieces of software, ran it in a virtual machine, and then would run open source scanning software on it get the results, put it in a database. We did, we did another thing where so we had a series of bots that actually signed up for every mailing list on the internet that we could find. <laughs> and there was literally millions of them. And, and we would sign up and then we would see, did they sell your email address? And we, we'd put a unique email address in every one of them. And actually a lot of it, it was funny because they would sell, I got these photos somewhere, they would sell despite their privacy policies or maybe somewhere embedded in the 40-page privacy policy, which is an absurd system, right? The user is supposed to have read it. A lot of them would actually sell your information to offline mail. And so we had to actually figure out a way to receive that mail in like a way that was legal and, you know, not – we didn't want to ever type in fake information so we actually yeah, yeah. we actually had a room in our office devoted to all of the spam snail mail that we received. <laughs> and then kind of to our surprise, uh, generated a lot of interest from the big security incumbents. So back then, security was really a duopoly, kind of Coke and Pepsi between uh, Symantec, which makes Norton, and McAfee. Right. And basically what happened is they both approached us and said, we think your product is interesting and we want to acquire you. And by the way, if you, we, you know, if you don't sell the company to us, we're going to build something like this. Um, and so, you know, we, the other option would have been to raise more venture money and try to kind of go for it. What was it about this period in time? You were sort of saying this was the, you know, the worst of it, 2004, 2005, like why weren't the browsers doing this or, you know, the operating systems that had browsers, like why were they allowing sort of this unchecked stuff to happen, which, which created such a poor user experience? If you ask the companies like Microsoft, Semantic and McAfee at the time, What's the solution to this problem? They saw their role as providing technical solutions. So for things that that are technical breaches, when in fact, what had happened is many of these things were not technical breaches. Everything was functioning properly from a technical perspective. The browser was functioning mm -hmm. properly. They were It was really social engineering, right? They were convincing somebody to click. So Microsoft, for example, their model of for security in this case was they would have a pop-up come up and the user would say yes or no, whether they want to accept this software. Right. Microsoft's answer was stop clicking yes. They literally had all these websites <laughs> that said, tell users don't click yes so much. Why are you clicking yes? And so they would literally yeah. kind of attribute it to user error. And, and that's, I think it just came from their mindset. Their mindset was, look, look, we're, they came from a world where you had things like antivirus, where people would literally find like a security vulnerability and exploit it, right? And they were very good at doing that. But then the world shifted to most of the kind of what we would consider threats were in a much more gray area that were really around social engineering. That's why we very deliberately called the company Site Advisor, not Site Blocker or Site. Because right. the idea was we wanted to be in the advice business and we, we wanted to own that and really have an opinion. And 
we thought that if we built that over time, people would say, you know what, I trust this particular company right. because I think they have a good opinion. And like five or 10 years earlier, you would have been mostly buying software offline and then installing it, right? And then as speeds got up, you were starting to more easily just say, oh, I'll install that, you know, click a button and five minutes later you have it. It was a combination of things, right? It was so spyware, for example, some people call it adware. A couple of things happened. Like one, it was sort of the, you know, if you look at the back, the internet was really growing quickly at that point. So you just had more and more people coming online. A lot of them weren't that technical, didn't understand these things. There was a business model behind. That's very importantly with all of these kind of modern security things. There's a, there's a business model behind people were making money by getting right. these, the software on your computer, they would show pop-up ads and make money. And so there's a business model behind it. To this day, I think that's another thing that happened is a lot of the, I kind of think of the history of computer security as going from the first wave kind of in the 80s and 90s is, was kind of more vandalism, I'd call it, which is, sort of, <laughs> you know, hackers, sort of hackers in the dark sense of the word, maybe teenagers or whatever. You know, if you think about like, you know, the MIT worms and just sort of the early, it was mischief, somewhere between mischief and vandalism, right? Yeah. And then at some point in the 2000s, it really shifted to an economic motive and you had real companies behind it. And some of them were offshore, you know, kind of hacker groups, but frankly, a lot of them were U.S.-based companies who were technically uh, following the law because they had some term embedded in their 30-page privacy policy, but it was leading to a really bad user experience and bad outcome. By the way, just to finish that, the I think now we've shifted to probably a new era of security where most of the threats are actually much more like kind of political, like nation state kind of level things. Anyway, so yeah. it's sort of gone, in my mind, it went from vandalism to economically motivated, to politically motivated. I'm not in the security business anymore, but that's sort of kind of would be my take on it. Like, let's talk just a little about when you were making it in 2004, what was that like? Was that a bunch of developers sitting in a room? Like you were saying, you had some of the earlier virtual machines. You know, what was it like to work as a developer then in that entrepreneurial mode? Yeah, we didn't have we didn't have all these nice, you know, kids today, man. They had, we didn't have Stack Overflow. <laughs> we didn't have GitHub. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the biggest thing was not having cloud, um, right. you know, having to do that. that was a huge, and that's why we needed venture capital, and that really changed the economics of startups. So we had to, you know, we raised uh, I think seven million altogether, and probably half of that went out to capex data center costs, and that's very different today. So that that's a huge thing, you know. My so I give this all the credit to my co-founders who are both MIT computer scientists. Actually, actually, you know, we built everything in Python, which I think at the time was pretty early for that, but now is be kind of a mainstream practice, except for the the Windows specific stuff you have to do in C and things. And we we were about twenty people, uh, mostly engineers, because they were MIT. They came from kind of the MIT sort of very oriented sort of to sort of the Unix, you know, Python kind of stack, open source mm -hmm. stack. And so we we did a lot of what now would be called DevOps. I, we didn't call it that back then, but we spent a lot of time automating our like to get lever instead of, so back then when you had a colo, like a data center, you typically, you know, for a thing we were running with hundreds of machines, you had to have a pretty large staff of people to manage it all. We spent a lot of time instead automating those things and didn't really have kind of this sharp divide between sysadmins and developers, mm. which I think is now a very common thing to do, right? It's called DevOps. Yeah. All the automation and tooling is now sort of like, you want to build that in from the beginning, but that was a point in time where you're saying people had always thought of these as hardware-specific jobs, and you're just getting to a point where you could start to think about doing it a different way? That's right, yeah. Um, and we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't have things like Kubernetes and all these, like, really beautiful orchestration platforms they have now, so we had to do a lot of it. But So then, so anyway, so just so then to yeah. fast forward a little bit, we, uh, so we sold the company, and then um, me and a bunch of the same people got really interested in machine learning. Uh, this is now 2007 and eight. And thought, okay, machine learning is the future and we got to do something with it. And so we started another company. After spending some time at McAfee, we left and, and started another company. It was called Hunch. And the idea with Hunch was 
to take a bunch of the new kind of breakthroughs in machine learning and build kind of a recommendation technology company. So, and I'll just I'll just fast forward to explain the easiest way to explain what to do is we ended up getting acquired by eBay and so going back to 2008. But I feel like that seems like early on the idea of ML being really popular. Like when when was ImageNet? I mean, you're talking about popular among people who who are really reading, not like broadly well known. You're right. You're right. And uh, I didn't think if we later on talk about my current interests. The I think the risk I've had over the course of my career is being a little bit early on these <laughs> things. Because um, you're right. Because yeah. like machine learning really like the the big breakthrough that kind of changed everything. I think was 2000. 13, which was the Google Deep Learning cats cat study. I mean, that was a symbolically important moment, but I think it was also the moment at which people realized that deep neural networks, now that you had sufficient computing power, were going to be a order of magnitude improvement in machine learning. And we were before that and sold a company before that. And if you'd asked me, we sold the company in 2011, if you asked me in 2012, like, why did we end up selling the company and not creating a big independent company ourselves? I'd say... You know, we made a series of product mistakes or something else. If you ask me today, I think we were too early. Yeah. I mean, ImageNet was 2009. And I was actually thinking about this the other day. I remember Hunch, you had to take these quizzes, right? And they would sort of like try to get your taste profile. And, you know, you had to ask a lot of users up front to sort of gather that data and then recommend stuff. And now on Instagram, you know, it knows that I'm into jujitsu and that I have kids and these are the kind of restaurants I go to. It just sucks all that up because I have the social imperative to do it. And then it builds the taste graph without, you know, having to ask me to do extra work. But yeah, for sure. The taste graph obviously is super valuable. I think also, even once you have the data with the current algorithms, you can just make better recommendations. I mean, we've seen that you mentioned ImageNet, right? So that's the contest they have to see who can classify images the best. If you, one of the most stunning graphs in the, in the software world, I think is the error rate of ImageNet winners, right? And it went from, I don't know what it was. I'm going to say something like 30% error rates, which is pretty bad in like 2013 to now it's better than a human. And that happened in the course of now, I guess it's been six years. So like we talked a little bit about what it was like building SiteAdvisor in 2004. So then fast forward to 2008, 2009, what were you doing building Hunch? What was the team like? What languages and frameworks were you using? Like how had things changed in those five, five years? So cloud would be the big one, right? So we could use, the, we everything was built on AWS and that meant, you know, a huge thing economically and let us kind of scale the back end. I think we, Tom, my main kind of co-founder for both companies was, uh, he's always been a sort of religious Unix Python stack person. So we, we did a lot, you know, in this case, we had to do a lot of big data. So what did we use for the, uh, you know, this is, uh, we, we, uh, at the end of it, we were using Hadoop because that came out. We had, we had a, you know, in this case, it was it was very data focused. So at that point, I think Bitcoin and the white Satoshi's white paper had already started to sort of make some big noise. So that was something you were reading about and thinking about the side, or did you not really pay attention to that until after Hunch? So when I was working on my security company, we were also thinking about other, obviously, other security products. And um, the, so there's this there's this thing called Hashcash, which actually is the algorithm used in Bitcoin mining. And Hashcash mm-hmm. dates to at least, uh, I think it's late 90s. And the, the idea with Hashcash, it was, it was a cool idea, which was a way to reduce email spam. And the idea was email spam is kind of a tragedy of the commons where it's it's wonderful that email is free. But what happens, unfortunately, is that spammers exploit the fact that it's free. And yeah. if they get one person in a billion to you know, whatever buy one of their spam products, you know, the economics work for them. So people have talked for years about what if you had some sort of micro, what if you got charged a hundredth of a penny for every email or something, right? And right. then that would not affect presumably most users because maybe you send 100 emails and receive 100 and you net out equal, but it would kill the spammer economics. Right now, of course, the problem is how do you actually do that? 
charge that money. And so the yeah. hash graph is a really cool idea, which is instead of charging the money, you charge them compute cycles. And so you make them basically solve a computing puzzle. And that computing puzzle is, is specifically designed to cost a certain amount of electricity, like a micro amount of electricity. And so actually we were looking at, at one point, uh, we ended up not pursuing this idea, but at one point we were looking at, can we productize that concept and make mm. a kind of a new type of email client that resists spam through Hashgraph. And so when I saw Bitcoin first, for me, it was more just like intellectual curiosity, which is, oh, so these, these people took the, the Hashgraph idea, but then let you actually store kind of proof that you had done the computation in this thing called Bitcoin, right? That's where it was kicking around, right? It was like security, crypto, email lists before it got big. That was kind of the crowd that was reading up about it. And I remember Adam Smith, the founder of Modern Economics, he has a phrase he calls capital uh, is stored labor. So mm -hmm. you, you prove that you did eight hours of work and you get money and that then you store it as capital. And so to me, it was sort of, oh, so Bitcoin is like stored Hashgraph, right? Like, so Hashgraph mm -hmm. is a labor. You've done the labor and then you get to store that labor. And so to me, it was, you know, like I like a lot of people in 2008, nine, you know, I was like, cool idea, never going to go anywhere. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you know I, I didn't, I can't at all say that I predicted it would get adoption and things. But, you know, you know, just just and why? Because of network effects and just will people actually accept this thing and it's too different. Right. And, but I think the idea, too, which I mean, this is taking me longer to figure out, but the idea that you could embed sophisticated computing logic into a decentralized network, which I think now, you know, Bitcoin began and now has been further developed by these newer crypto networks like Ethereum. It just it was also just sort of a fascinating concept. And it's still kind of magical even to this day, like if I send someone to Bitcoin or something, the idea that there is, it's truly just this decentralized network doing computations. And then when I send you a Bitcoin, it's, it's sort of, to me, it's like the offline equivalent of handing you a piece of gold and you can verify you got the gold through a chemical test, not having to go ask a bank or a third party. And it's just, just you know, it's just a really kind of interesting new architecture. Um, yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I think to the things that surprised me would be one, that Bitcoin kind of grew as it did. Um, but then two, then all of these brilliant technologists who then took those kind of core concepts and generalized them. I think we're still in the middle of that. You know, with crypto, it's definitely been a hurry up and wait because I think the value of the currency driven up by speculators sort of inflated the expectation of what the market would be. But in terms of popular adoption or like, you know, widespread use of the technology in the same way that we think of cloud or mobile or internet hasn't come to fruition yet. So talk a little about the school and the market and then maybe where you hope it'll go. The way I think about the history of, of history of computing, rather, is every 10 to 15 years, there's a major new computing cycle. So you have, you know, the advent of computers at World War II, mainframe computers, mini computers, PCs, uh, the internet, smartphones. It's, if you go back, it's really kind of 10 to 15 years almost is always the sort of length of a cycle. I, I believe now we're, I think we're in a particularly exciting time right now. I think there's multiple cycles happening. I think everything we talked about around machine learning is incredibly exciting. That's mm -hmm. in turn enabling a whole new series of devices from, you know, autonomous drones to self-driving cars to talking speakers mm -hmm. and watches and also, you know, VR. So I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on. And then I think, I, I think of, crypto blockchains as computers. And they, they are literally computers in the sense that the properly built ones have mechanisms for both storing information and then operating on that information. In mm -hmm. in cases like Ethereum and a lot of the kind of more modern ones, they're almost Turing complete, meaning they're you know, very expressive programming languages and you can write arbitrary mm -hmm. software. Like all new computers, they have 
strengths and weaknesses. And the weaknesses include things like the performance. And this is why sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, they're just slow databases or something because they're looking at the negative characteristics. The positive characteristics, what, what is a block? What's special about a blockchain? It's that they provide strong game theoretic guarantees that the code will continue to run as designed. So if you write a smart contract on Ethereum, you know that that code will run that way, hopefully in perpetuity, as long as the network's around. And it doesn't matter if the designers of the of Ethereum decide to change something. It doesn't matter if the people actually running the network, the so-called miners or validators, change their minds. The game theoretic mechanism on top, what we call the consensus mechanism, makes that commitment to the to the developer mm. and, and does that despite somebody becoming evil or changing their mind. And so what that means is I think of it as enabling new computing primitives. So for example, the concept of digital money. So a core, a core promise that Bitcoin makes is that there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. You don't have to trust Satoshi or people, the mining, people running the mining rigs or the core developers today or anybody else. It's a guarantee made by the computer itself, by the Bitcoin network. That's a new thing that's never existed before. It's a new architecture. It's a new uh, enabling architecture that allows you to build digital services that can be owned and operated by communities as opposed to being owned and operated by a single company. And you you can do, there's a very wide range of ways you can architect this. So to me, it's it's I think we have a new alternative, a new way to do things, which I believe if the next few years play out the way I hope they do, combine the best of both worlds and let you have the kind of the decentralized political power architecture of web one with the rich functionality of web two. So I, I spend a lot of time in crypto. We have a crypt, we have a, a dedicated fund here at Andreessen Horowitz that invests in crypto. I, I've been working in the space for now since 2013. We've seen a lot of entrepreneurs now working in the space who we think have figured out kind of some early best practices. And we feel like that knowledge has not fully propagated outside of a small group of people, kind of practitioners. And so we had this idea to start a crypto startup school, which is going to run in the early part of 2020. It's free. There's no, we don't take equity. There's no tuition, nothing like that. We're taking applications right now. If anyone wants to come, go to a16z.com and we have, uh, or Google a16z crypto startup school. We're going to have a bunch of in-person students. We're also going to, we have a lot of great speakers we're announcing next week. We're also going to video everything and put it online uh, again for free and for the public. And our hope is just to kind of promulgate some of these best practices and share these ideas and I hope get some more people excited about it. I think there's a lot of misimpressions about the space. There's so much focus yeah. on money, as you mentioned, and the hype that I think the, the how exciting the technology is gets lost in that. And so we're trying to show that side of things. And I hope that, I don't know, students or other practitioners or just people looking for something new to work on. Maybe it's a weekend project. Maybe it's a full-time job. Say, hey, maybe I'll take another look at this and, and actually look at the technology. And we just want to provide resources to help them do that. Right. What are the key elements that make it possible for a crypto startup to succeed today? What are the technologies people need to learn in order to do that? It depends very much on whether you're what we call layer one or layer two. And so that is mm -hmm. another way to say kind of infrastructure or applications. So, you know, to analogize it to a phone, if you're building a you know smartphone, you use one language. If It's obviously not a phone, but it's an analogy. Um, right. Or if, if you're building on top of the iPhone, you have to use, you know, whatever that phone might require. So like if you're building on top of Ethereum, so there's what called, you know, there's sort of applications on Ethereum and you have to write in the, the main language for Ethereum. It's a, it's a language designed by the Ethereum developers called Solidity. And Solidity nice. is a very, it's very similar to JavaScript, but has some different properties. 
and so that, that's what we call a smart contract language. Facebook just released one. Uh, op- it's on GitHub. It's open source called Move. That's very interesting. Move, the key feature is that money is a is a primitive data type in the language. And so, you know, just like integers and string, you know, characters and all these other things, you don't have money and money, you can't delete money and you can only like move it in <laughs> one place. And it has different properties right. that are that are enforced by the runtime. And uh, so there's if you're building a layer two, you have to build in one of these kind of crypto specific languages beneath that, like people are writing things. And well, I mean, every WASM is the WASM is the sort of the, the hot thing. Right. So WASM, of course, is a you know, WebAssembly. It's now built in, I believe, into all the browsers and sort of is the new yeah. JavaScript. And so all of the modern stuff is basically the, the runtime is WASM, um, mm-hmm. which then means you can use whatever your favorite language is because almost every language, you know, modern language has a WASM compiler. You know, so I'd say on that level, people are using probably like Rust, Haskell, a lot of functional languages, stuff like this. Yeah. But then everything, the runtimes of these new crypto networks are usually WASM, both for performance and just for, you know, because they have so much support around them. And then on top, often people will use, yeah, like the, the actual smart contract language that you code smart contracts in will usually be some kind of variant of a popular language. There's, I think, what, what what most people consider to be a, a fairly obscure type of programming languages, which are actor-based languages, are now having a renaissance in the crypto world. Those are languages where they have a nice property, which is uh, they work very well in in widely distributed systems. So, if you want to like mm. call a function across two shards of a distributed system, actor-based languages basically make all function calls are message passing and so work really well in distributed systems. It's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, like how this is a different paradigm and, and you don't feel like people really appreciate it enough. That's a good reason, you know, or one of the reasons you're creating the school. Um, it reminds me a lot of like the quantum computing talk that's been going on, which is to say it can solve this problem that would take an ordinary computer 50,000 years, it's not really clear what the function of solving that problem is now, what the market value is, if any. But it presents a new paradigm that a lot of people are interested in that you know could have promised down the road. But I guess one interesting difference there is like most people just don't have access to quantum computing technology in any way. Is there stuff that the average person at home, no matter where they are, if they have a decent computer and an internet connection, can do in the crypto space, can build themselves, like can build a you know, minimum viable product and then show it to an investor? Or do you need a certain like level of resources to start working in this sphere? It's very, I think it's a relatively low bar. Like I would encourage people to, I probably start with Ethereum. There's a ton of tooling around it. There's like, a, for example, yeah. Truffle is a very popular development environment for Ethereum. So you can really get relatively quickly started there. We have a resource, if you if you Google um, crypto, A16Z Crypto Canon, we sort of put together, we think are all the kind of canonical articles, Some of, many of them technical, mm-hmm. that would be like a good just sort of starting reading list kind of place. No, I think this is a, one, one of the other thing I'd say about this movement is it's very much like the open source movement in that it's an outside in movement. It's it's the people coming from the fringes. It, it's people all over the world. It's It doesn't take a lot of resources. I think of tech movements as either being inside out or outside in, like smartphones had to be inside out because you needed a billion dollars in a factory and a supply chain and all these other things yeah. to build one. <laughs> you know, Ethereum is literally like, you know, was built by a kind of this uh, distributed t- team. You know, Vitalik is college dropout and they're all kind of all over the world and they don't have like kind of the formal training and all these other things. So you don't need, uh, despite all the focus on the on the money and things in crypto, you really don't need, you know, that many resources to do things. And uh, I actually, I think the analogies to open source run pretty deep. Open source, I think also was very misunderstood for decades. It was seen as fringe, you know, crazy, anti-corporate, left-wing kind of stuff. Right. If you go back and it's interesting to go read and look and watch videos from the Microsoft trials in the 90s, like 
Linux is almost never mentioned. It's always Sun. Like it wasn't. It's 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 so funny now because Linux, of course, is ninety five percent of the computers in the world. Probably I'm just making that number up, but it's you know it's all data centers. It's Android. Yeah. It's you know it's become just but and open source is just dominates in every. I mean, even the iPhone is like probably you know a significant portion of the code is open source. Well, it dominates, but it's also been like acquired. Many of the big things have been acquired and are inside of corporations now, right? They are, I mean, like, but they, they, it's interesting. Like, if you go look at the stats for like who contributes to Linux, like it's actually it ends up being kind of this alliance. Like, it's like I think it's like the top contributors, Intel, but then there's you know all sorts of other Google and all sorts of other companies, and so it ends up being this kind of neutral alliance among all these companies and hobbyists, you know, and hackers. And so, anyways, but the analogy I was making is that. In the same way that so many people kind of dismissed open source as kind of this radical political movement, but the, but but at some point it really morphed into a tech movement. It was just simply a better mm-hmm. way to build software. I believe that same thing with crypto. Crypto is weird because it came from a different angle, almost more like this kind of anarchist right wing kind of libertarian thing. And so a lot of people mm-hmm. see that and it turns them off, and they're like, "What is this? These weirdos who want to like take down the Federal <laughs> Reserve?" But actually, like I again, I'd encourage listeners to go take another look because. I think they're making the same mistake that the that the people in the '90s made about open source, where they just dismiss it all as like you know radical stuff. Or even if the politics that were involved in the creation, that doesn't necessarily mean it can't be agnostic of the politics once the technology is developed. That, I mean, it's true that that was the politics of some of the original uh, proponents, but sure. it's not essential or fundamental to the technology. The technology right. is a, is a is a true kind of computing breakthrough. And uh, is a completely apolitical. And I think actually in the concept that you can create community owned and operated digital services, I think in a lot of ways, you know, is, is not at all kind of libertarian. It's much more of a kind of communitarian kind of view of things. When you want people to come work at your crypto startup or maybe you're doing machine learning, maybe you got a drone thing. What is it these days that's really attractive to developers? Because I feel like edu- like the ability to learn is now so wide open that maybe that's not as big a draw. I think you're right. There's amazing resources for learning software development. I do think that there's always a frontier that is Mm. mostly in people's heads that you really only get by going and working at a a company that's, that's at that frontier. And so, you know, if you're at a Google and Facebook working on NLP stuff, you're probably seeing things three years and natural language processing, machine learning stuff. You're probably seeing stuff three years ahead of everybody else. Same with a Mm. lot of these like kind of high tech crypto companies. My main way, by the way, to learn stuff now is I love watching like YouTube videos of those things where the people program and you see the, you know, you see the software on the, the, the code on the screen <laughs> yeah. and, then the, and then the, it's like Twitch. I think it's amazing. Like you can see all these, you know, so there's tons of that stuff, but I think there's always a, a three to five year, let's call it frontier that is just in people's heads. It's kind of folk knowledge that you have to be in, in the middle of to be working on. And I agree with you. I think one of the main things that, you know, with great developers is that they want to do is they want to learn new things and things that will help their career and things that are intellectually exciting. And I've I've always believed in in our investments and investing in companies that have a a mission that's, you know, both kind of a social mission, but also a technology mission that gets people excited. And I think it gives them a recruiting advantage for that reason. All right. Well, that was a great interview we just did uh, with Chris Dixon. Thanks for coming on. And now we are going to shout out our lifeboaters and say our goodbye. Sorting strings in descending order in JavaScript, parentheses most efficiently, C-O-L-X-I. Thank you. Whoa. Okay. 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 Second question, seemingly related. Why should I use Java's string writer from JASCI? What is OAuth and how does it secure REST API calls from all is vanity? Mm. Good username. And last but not least, count spaces in a string, Mike. 
These are that sounds like those a are basic good questions. One. That is basic, but those are good questions. They deserve answers. Yeah, those are good questions. They deserve answers. Good job, life boaters. We have a new series uh, that'll be on the blog every other Friday. So one Friday uh, it'll be the newsletter, and then the next Friday it'll be Stack Overflow Knows, which is just a collection of great questions from Stack Overflow and the Stack Exchange Network. So come check it out, and if you have submissions from the community, we want to hear from you. We're also looking for more folks from the community to write for us. So if you're interested, we pay, and that could be a lot of fun. Uh, if you're a top contributor to a tag, we want to hear from you. And beyond that, uh, have a great holiday and we will see you after the solstice in the futuristic year of 2020. Sarah, where can we find you on the internet? Sarah J. Chips on Twitter.com. Ben, who are you? I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. And I'm Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of Postlight. You can find us at postlight.com. And you know what? You should follow me on Twitter. At F-Train, I have good content. It's true. He's very funny. (laughs) 